So hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the 11th chapter, verses 29 through 32, but focusing this morning on 29 and 30. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold... Something greater than Jonah is here. And may the Lord bless this reading of his word to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him for that illumination. Our dear Lord, this particular section of the gospel of Luke that you breathed into um, his mind, his heart, his, his thoughts, that we know this is the spirit speaking through his words Lord, they are so poignant, and they are so necessary, and they are something that the church today needs to hear so completely. I pray that, that your words will speak through me this morning, that I won't stray from the meaning of these words, that you would give me the ability to um, clearly a- a- elucidate the words and to, without trying to water them down or trying to uh, make them something they're not, that we would see what you are actually telling the people when you talked to them 2,000 years ago. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Every day, millions of Christians ask God for a sign. Now, this takes various and sundry different, you know, modalities. Some of them just ask God outright, hey, God, give me a sign. I've got to make a decision. I I need to know whether to take this job or that job. And I need you to just flat out give me a sign to show me what I should do. Others, they're not necessarily asking for something demonstrative like that. But what they're doing is they're trying to piece together the circumstances and events of their lives. Well, I saw that and and then that was added to it and I heard that and I'm going to put them all together and ask what on earth does that mean and what is God trying to say to me? Even unbelievers that don't believe in God at all will sometimes ask him for a sign. Something like, God, you know, I don't know if you're there and and I really don't believe in you, but if you're real, show me by doing this or by doing that. Now, the question that I have for you this morning is, is that a sign of exalted spirituality? Is, is that another level of faith, or is that actually a sign of unbelief? And this morning, I'm going to let Jesus answer that. I'm, I'm the messenger this morning. I'm just going to try to faithfully recount to you the words of Jesus and what he has to say on what actually is a very poignant subject in the church today. And towards that end, we will discuss just the 29th and 30th verses this morning 
Um, as those of you who come here regularly know, I do this all the time. I bite off more than I can chew. I mean, I, we'd be here for two hours if I was going to do the entire passage. So I, I cut it. I divided it, even though it belongs together. And so therefore, you, you know, if I get to the end of the message and it feels like we just kind of jumped off the edge of a cliff and I didn't quite finish it, it's because it was just yesterday that I decided that I, I had to um, divide this. But the second thing I want to bring out about the message is that I made a mistake last week, and I need to go back and correct it. I said several times in my message that Luke was bringing us to the end of the discussion of spiritual warfare, and that we were in transition, getting ready to go into a time that Jesus is going to didactically teach us. Well, actually, that's, that's not correct. Uh, I, I forgot, and I'm going to take you back and show you why it's not correct, but I forgot that we are actually in an extension of the discussion of spiritual warfare. And the reason I wanted to tell you that up front is because I'm going to ask you to once again visualize what we have talked about over the last couple of weeks. And if you haven't been here, you might find this to be a phrase that you don't recognize, but it is the the phrase, the cosmic initiative. We've talked about Christ's cosmic initiative, and, and, and that's nothing more than the advent of the kingdom of God, looking at it not from our point of view when Jesus comes down, but looking at it from heaven's point of view when Jesus permeates the darkness of this silent planet cut off from God by the evil ruler, the devil who has it in his clutches, and he brought the truth, the light into that dark planet. Now, I want you to look at it just a little differently this morning and next week as well. It's going to be the same way. I want you to see it almost as if this was a shaft of brilliant light that comes from heaven and just bolts across the universe and then breaks through the darkness that shrouds this world and shines on the tiny little country of Israel. And, and, and in this light is a metaphor, not just for light, but it is a metaphor for truth. In other words, the truth of God is going to be manifest in this world. And that's what Jesus did. He brought the truth. Quite often, we don't want to hear the truth. And, and, and here's the way I want you to look at it. Because last week, if you were here, you know that we talked about Satan's diabolical countermeasure. We talked about, okay, here's Jesus, he has come, and he has come into this world not to make friends with evil, not to get along with evil, not to make a a peace treaty with evil, but to destroy it. That's why he's come, and to destroy evil, evil in the sense of Satan and his demons and those who bear the mark of the beast and, and death and sin completely obliterated eventually. But he also came to set the captives free. He came to seek and save the lost. He came to find and rescue his bride, his bride being the church, and return that bride and present her to his father purified and, and, and cleansed. Okay, So he came for that reason. He, and, 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 and we talked about last week that, okay, we, when the light comes into the darkness, the darkness is going to fight back. And so Satan had actually come up with a very brilliant countermeasure. I'm just going to create sort of a gospel lookalike, a gospel that is all based on your moralism or your religiosity, a gospel that kind of looks on the outside like it might be the real gospel, but is a gospel that simply will not save you. Well, 
where I messed up is I forgot that this passage we have in front of us is another prong of that same diabolical countermeasure. It's just he's going at it a little different. Let me see if I can put it to you this way. Let me give you just a little bit of analogy. Let's say that you walk into a dark room and you want to turn the lights on. Now, you want, well, let me put it a different way. You walk into a dark room and you want to dispel the darkness. Okay, you want to get rid of the darkness. The darkness permeates you. You're going to be able to flail away at that darkness and do anything to it to make it go away. How do you get rid of the darkness when you walk into a room? Like on the light switch. Simple, really, because darkness cannot exist in the presence of light. The light drives the darkness away. So when you turn the light switch on, there's, without question, the darkness goes away. Now, if that's truth and falsehood, falsehood cannot live in the presence of the truth of God. So, just imagine that you're the... Actually, don't imagine that. Satan is the... I don't want you to imagine that you're Satan. But, but Satan is brilliant in, in his ability to switch things around. So, if that was your job to try to make people... Once the light goes on, you're toast... So what might you do to try to keep that from happening? Well, to convince the person that the light switch is just an ornament on the wall, that the light switch has no function, that there's actually no lights that are in that room, and you have to find another means to illuminate the room. And so even though you can simply switch on the light switch and the light permeates the room, you're you're searching around in the dark for some other means of finding the truth. That's exactly what this passage is about. Jesus is going to talk about, he's going to refer to signs and seeking signs and looking for the truth elsewhere other than his words. He's going to put the word evil to it. It's his words, not mine. So this is a quite a poignant passage for the millions of people who are actually looking for signs all the time. Now, I'm not going to chide you this morning, and, 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 and I'm going to try to present this as Jesus did, his words, but I do ask that you do one thing, and, and no one is immune from this, because I did it this week, and I did not like what I saw. I ask you to hold the mirror of Scripture up before your face and turn the brightest light on that you can, and ask yourself as we go through this, is Jesus talking about me? Right, with that said, let's kind of get our minds back in the groove. I want to step back from the whole story, and I want to look at it from the overview, and I want to remind you that we have this extraordinary situation in Luke. Way back at the end of the 10th chapter, we're talking about sanctification. Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, absorbing every word that he says. That's the the absorption of the word of God. That's a means of grace. That is how we are sanctified. That's how we grow. That is how we glorify God. And then Jesus went into a discussion of prayer, another means of grace. This is the way that we gain spiritual discernment. Then all of a sudden, it seemed like it was very abrupt. We're talking about sanctification, and the very next thing, we're talking about demons. And we asked ourselves the question, what on earth happened? Why are we talking about this demonic world when we were talking about sanctification? And the reason was, is that the, the kingdom of God, which is co- has come to earth, needs battle-ready, strong, disciplined, obedient, unified, sanctified saints to stand against the gathering storm, to be able to stand against and plunder the house of the strong man, and to be able to discern his diabolical countermeasures. 
I mean, this is a spiritual battle that is going on. We realize that they just went right together. Now, all of a sudden, if you were here last week at the very end of it, Jesus says, you know, a woman in the crowd says, blessed are you, blessed is the, are, are, is the womb that bore you. And Jesus says, no, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Jesus is hammering this, folks. I want you to see it. Jesus is hammering the essential nature of the revealed, sufficient, infallible, and inerrant word of God. As opposed to seeking signs. So with that said, let's jump in to our text. Again, we're only going to be looking at those first two verses. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Boy, that's a big verse. Let's kind of take it apart. First of all, we read that when the crowds were increasing. Now, Luke hasn't really given us much of an indication of the size of the crowds that, that are going on. You know, as far as we know, there, there's not much that's been happening that way. So let's go back just for a moment. And I want to take us back to the 14th verse where we learn about the crowds that are actually there, and we also are going to learn why I made a mistake and why this is still a very important part of spiritual warfare. In the 14th verse of the 11th chapter, this is what we read. It started the whole conversation. Now, he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. Notice that. The people marveled. No no real indication of a big crowd. But some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Now that started the whole conversation about was Jesus actually using the power of God or not. And of course he destroyed that argument with pure logic. And then he talked about the fact that here I am to destroy the house of the strong man. And I'm the one who can do it because I am stronger than he. And plunder his goods, which of course were the souls that he held in such tight believing that they were his. But what I forgot about was the 16th verse. Remember what that says. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. So literally what we did is we went down one path of a fork and we kind of explored that over the last couple of weeks. Now we have to back up and start at the 16th verse again. And now we're going to jump to the 29th verse because we're going down the same path. So as Jesus is in the same conversation, the exact same event, all of a sudden the crowd begins to grow and and, and it gets larger. Now, what I want you to notice about the crowd is don't assume that as this crowd gets large, now they're either, you know, gathering together because they've heard about the miracle that Jesus worked or because of the contention. But don't assume that it's a neutral, benign crowd. Don't don't assume that it's a friendly crowd. Because what we have just heard about the crowd is that some of them are accusing Jesus of actually working in cahoots with the devil while the rest of them are clamoring for a sign. Okay, so we can assume that as the crowd grows, the number of voices that are accusing him of being a demon or demanding a sign actually grows as well. And that's what leads Jesus to make this profound statement that he's about to make. So when the crowd was growing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. This is an extraordinary verse. 
but I mean a part of a verse, so let's take it apart. I think we kind of have an idea of what is meant by the word generation. Uh, it's, Jesus uses it twice here. And he uses it elsewhere to talk about, usually in a negative sense. Actually, going all the way back to Galilee, he had very similar to this exact same conversation. And he talks about the wickedness of this generation. Now, obviously, he's talking to a group in front of him. And so the idea of a generation refers to people, basically, who are alive at the same time that you're alive. In a Hebrew context, a generation was about 40 years. And, and so that's the people who were there. But the meaning of the word transcends that. It transcends a particular people group and it transcends time. Actually, when Jesus uses the word generation in this way, it refers to everyone who is of the same mindset, who has the same belief, who does the same things, no matter what race or country or nation or language or ethnicity or creed they adhere to or what time they live in. And so, brothers and sisters, the important thing that you remember is you potentially are included in this generation. The way Jesus is putting it, it has nothing to do with time. It has to do with your mindset. It has to do with your belief. It has to do with the way that you act. And so, therefore, we all can easily be in this generation. And then once again, when I say, would you please hold the mirror of Scripture up and ask yourself, is indeed Jesus speaking of me? Well, the other word that he uses here, he doesn't simply say that this generation, he says it's an evil generation. Now, a generation, I mean, the word evil is the word that is used of the devil. It's used of evil spirits. It means to be absolutely wicked. It talks about spiritual darkness, um, the exact opposite of what Jesus has come to share, to shed the light. And so when he says that this, this group that he is talking to is evil, I mean, that's just an amazing statement because what makes them evil? You have to remember who he's talking to. He's, he's not in Ephesus standing in front of the temple of Diana or Artemis as the case may be. Where inside they're indulging in male and female prostitution as part of the worship services. And where they are worshiping idols and doing all kinds of unspeakable things. Jesus is not talking to those pagans. He is rather talking to the covenantal people of God. He's talking about the very ones that God has set aside for his own purposes. He's talking about the ones that God has blessed beyond comparison, given the oracles of God, given the sacrificial system, given the temple. And many of these people go to the temple regularly and make sacrifices and tithe and and do the things that God has called them to do. And yet Jesus is calling them evil. Why why are they evil? How, How come Jesus is calling this particular group evil? Well, brothers and sisters, it is precisely because of the things I just listed. It is precisely because of the degree of light that they have been given. It is precisely because for millennia, God has been sharing his special revelation through the prophets to explain to them who he is. And now... 
he stands before them in the flesh. And they look right past him asking for a sign. They have this amazing revelation. They have the word of God. They have the law and the prophets. But that's not enough. They are looking beyond that and they say, give us a sign. And that is the reason that God, I mean, that Jesus calls them wicked. In fact, by the way, doesn't this confirm everything that we talked about last week? Do you remember the story about the, the people whose houses were cleaned and put in order? And, 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 and they were, but they were empty and they were therefore just welcoming the demon to come back into their heart and occupy it because they needed to fill their heart with Jesus. Well, the very one they need to fill their heart with now, Jesus is saying, because we have shared the light with you, because you have seen the truth and you have looked past it and are asking for a sign, you are an evil generation. He goes on and he expresses the reason um, that they're evil. He says, because an evil generation seeks for a sign. And brothers and sisters, if indeed an evil generation that seeks for a sign is considered to be evil by Jesus, I think it's important that we know what he means by sign. And we define that very carefully because none of us want to have that label applied to us. Now, in Greek, the word sign just simply means an indicator, something that points to something else. Usually something outside of itself. Let's say that you are driving to Orlando on the turnpike and you you see a sign up there that says Orlando 50 miles. Well, that is a signpost. That is a sign. It's an indicator. It points to something, the distance between you and Orlando. If you're driving through the mountains and you see one of those signs, kind of curvy with an arrow at the end, well, the sign is pointing to the the status of the road that is right around the corner. It's going to bend dramatically, so it points to something else. Now, Dr. Sproul brings out something very important about a sign that we'll get to later when we talk about the sign of Jonah. And that is that it's different from a symbol. A symbol is included in that which it points to. There's there's sort of an inclusion there where a sign points to something outside of itself. So when we talk about a sign and Jesus in this sense, what we're talking about are the mighty works that he is doing, the miracles that he is performing. You know from the study of John that John uses that word almost exclusively to talk about the miracles of Jesus because they were to point to something else. The the miracles were not the point in and of themselves. Jesus is not doing circus tricks to entertain people. They have a reason, a purpose. And the purpose of a miracle is to point to the fact that Jesus is the divine son of God, that he has come bearing the word of God, and that we should listen to that word. That word is the important revelation. That's what the miracle pointed to, the sign to accept Jesus for who he was and the message that he brought with him. Now, what the people are saying to Jesus at this point is, no, we want a sign. Okay. Now, the reason that they want that sign, the problem with that is simply that they're, they're looking for something beyond what they already have. They're asking Jesus to, to, to show them a sign. 
Okay? And we see it, the first of several principles that we're going to run across this morning. If God has given you clear revelation, authentic res- revelation, authoritative revelation, if he has shown you the light of his truth and you look past that truth and ask him for a sign, that, brothers and sisters, is evil. Not my words, Jesus' words. To look past the revelation, to look past his word, to like look past what he has given you to know him and to say, no, I, I want a sign. I, I, I want you to prove yourself some way. That, according to our Lord, is evil. Okay? So, Jesus says, no sign is going to be coming. I'm not going to give you a sign. Look at this. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Now, we'll talk about the sign of Jonah in just a moment. But I, I, I want to sort of ask a question. Why do you think that Jesus would say no sign would be given to them? I mean, what would his purpose be? After all, Jesus, didn't you come to seek and save the lost? And these people are lost. What harm could they be? Could they be in showing them a sign? Don't the ends justify the means here? Because actually, if all they want is a sign and they say, Lord, we will believe in you if you give us a sign, why would Jesus not actually give them one? Well, that question is totally moot. Uh, you see, that's to take everything that we see in the Gospels out of context. Because actually, that's as if Jesus has worked one sign. If the only thing that he did, and nobody actually was there to witness it. But Jesus' entire ministry was showing people signs so that they would believe in him and believe in his message. You remember what John said at the end of his Gospel? This is the way that he put it. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. (laughs) They're not asking Jesus for a sign. They're asking him for another sign. After all, Jesus just cast out a demon, and he's made the point that the devil doesn't cast out demons. That's a supernatural, miraculous sign that I have just performed in front of you. John says he's doing that all the time. But here, here's, see, here's what the people are saying. They're saying, well, those, that's all well and good, and I appreciate that. And, you know, there's that man. We marveled at him. You know, he was mute, and now he can speak. And that lame man over there, he can walk. And that leper over there that was covered with leprosy, he's cleansed. And you've, you've healed the blind and the lame and done all kinds of wonderful things. But that's not enough for me to believe in you. Give me a real sign. Make that mountain move over there, you know. <laughs> Cause the moon to disappear for me. Do something cosmic, and then... I'll believe in you. Jesus says, no, you won't. No sign will come to you but the sign of Jonah. Now, brothers and sisters, there are some principles here. And, and, and I hope that you'll listen to them. And, and, and to help me get these principles out, let, let, let me give you another parable that Jesus taught just to sort of put it into its, into its perspective. We'll get to this later on in the book of Luke. It's a well-known parable. It's the one of the rich man and Lazarus who sat in his gates. Remember that? There's a rich man. There's Lazarus who's covered with wounds, and he's so poor he doesn't have anything to eat. And finally, they both die. Lazarus goes to heaven. The bosom of Abraham's the way it's referred to. The rich man goes to hell and is in terrible torment. And the rich man calls out to Abraham after asking for water, and he can't get it. Then he says, at least would you do me a favor? Go 
Tell my brothers the reality of things. Tell them the truth. Tell them that the word that we ignored is actually the word. And there is a place of eternal torment. And this is what Abraham said. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. In other words, they have the word of God. Let them hear the word of God. I've already given them clear uh, revelation. And of course, the man says, no, no, wait a minute. Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent and believe. Remember what Father Abraham said. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. There's four principles that that represents as well as what Jesus is saying here in this passage. Principle number one. God is under absolutely no obligation to show you a sign that you demand of him. No obligation whatsoever. So if you're going to demand a sign out of God and he doesn't give it to you, don't blame God. He is under absolutely no obligation to give you a sign. The second is that God will not reward your unbelief with a sign. He doesn't reward unbelief. I don't believe in you or I need you to show me something. And so therefore, give me a sign. He doesn't reward you by saying, okay, I'll give you a sign. Okay? That's not the way God works. Thirdly, God will not be told how to reveal himself to you. You cannot say, thank you for the word. I know it's there, but it's so much work for me to open it. Just give me a sign. God will not be told How he reveals himself to you. He has chosen the form of revelation. He has made himself evident. And the fourth one is it wouldn't make any difference anyway. Because no one comes to saving faith by seeing a miracle. No one. And of course the shining example of that is who? Judas Iscariot. Probably saw more signs than any human who walked the face of the earth and rejected Jesus. But those signs were not enough to save him. These are the principles that Jesus is putting forth in this when he says no sign is going to come to this generation. Again, remembering who this generation is except the sign of Jonah. So, let's take a look and see what he means by the sign of Jonah. End of verse 29, except the sign of Jonah, then on to verse 30. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Notice that he refers to himself as the Son of Man. You know, I told you that I can't use that phrase that I used for years and years, the cosmic Christ, because the heretics stole it from me and made it mean something else. But they don't have any idea what the cosmic initiative is. So I can say that Jesus, the Son of Man, refers to Jesus as the king of the cosmic initiative. We understand that. They don't. So in other words, this is Jesus in the context of the one who came to establish the kingdom of God to destroy evil and to set the captives free. That's who the Son of Man is. And he says that the only sign that they're going to get is the sign of Jonah. Now stay with me, folks, because it is a little bit more complicated than you may think that it is. We need to understand, first of all, what the sign of Jonah is. Now, when we talk about the resurrection and Jonah being in the fish for three days, okay, the belly of the fish, that is a tremendous symbol. And it's part of the sign, but it isn't the sign. 
So make sure that we know what the sign of Jonah is that Jesus is saying. That's the only sign that the people are going to get. As you know, Jonah was a prophet. And God called upon him to go and preach to the Ninevites. Ninevites, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. Was it the capital? Well, it was anyway. It was in Assyria. represented the Assyrians, the hated, barbarous enemies of the Israelites. God says, I want you to go preach judgment to them. Jonah says, I hate those guys. And if there's anything I would like, I would like for judgment to come upon them. So Jonah took off in the other direction. God said this right in the beginning of Jonah. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Kay and I sat on a hill overlooking the very harbor at Joppa that he took off from to go to the ends of the earth, Tarshish, which is probably modern-day Spain, simply as far as he could get away from The calling of God. Of course, God wouldn't have anything to do with that. He brought judgment upon Jonah, brought a mighty storm, and Jonah ended up in the sea. That's his judgment. And actually, that's where the whole story should have ended. But God sent a great fish, a whale, a a whale shark. Who knows what kind of fish it was, but he swallowed him up. Unfortunately, so many people think that Jonah spending three days in the belly of that fish was his punishment. Actually, no, that was his salvation. He should have been fish food, all right? In, in, in the, in, that was his judgment, being thrown into the, to the ocean. God, in his redemption, brought a fish so that, so that Jonah would be saved. Now, finally, Jonah makes it to Nineveh, gets spit out on the shore. He probably looked gross, but nonetheless, you know, he went about his business. And this is what we read in the third chapter. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Brothers and sisters, that is the sign of Jonah. Jonah was sent to Nineveh to preach judgment the wrath of God at their sinfulness. And that in a mere 40 days that they would be overthrown, that God's fierce wrath would come down upon the city and every man, woman, and child would be destroyed. That's the sign of Jonah, but it's not all of it. Because also wrapped up in the sign of Jonah is God's mercy and grace and redemption. Because after all, he sent that fish, that whale, that shark, whatever it was, to swallow him up. And he protected him for those three days and then delivered him. So whether Jonah told the Ninevites or not, he in his very life is a picture of God's redemption. But he was also a picture of God's mercy to the Ninevites. Because you see, God has sent Jonah to preach to the Ninevites. And they repented. And God gave Jonah a second chance, and he gave the Ninevites a second chance. And so God is expressing his mercy on those Ninevites. They were so wicked and evil, they should have been destroyed, but they weren't because God has sent his messenger, the one who spoke his word, to tell them of the judgment. And what we hear and read is that they repented from the person in the street to the king. They repented in sackcloth and ashes And here's what we read in the fifth version. The people of Nineveh believed God. That's the sign. Okay, that's the sign of Jonah. 
Jonah comes preaching judgment. The people repent. God forgives them of their atrocities, and they believed God. (laughs) That's the cosmic initiative in a nutshell. Now, what did they not do? They didn't ask for a sign. They didn't say, God, that's all well and good. This is a great preacher, and I tell you what, he's really charismatic. And, you know, I, I listen to what he says, but I need a sign. Show me something, you know. Talk to me in some other way. They didn't do that. They accepted the word of God as it was brought by his prophet. They believed in it. They repented it. And they were saved. They were not destroyed. That's the sign of Jonah. So Jesus says, no other sign is going to be given to these guys except the sign of Jonah. Now, Jesus, like Jonah, came preaching judgment. Okay, let me, but don't, don't say anything until I finish. Okay, because he did. I mean, Jesus came just like Jonah did, and he said that, you know, I have come to, um, to bring judgment. We said that back in the 20th verse, when after making his pristine argument that he was not casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub, he says, if indeed I cast out demons by the finger of God, then what? The kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of God is on you. It is here, and it is in front of you. Later on in John, he's going to say, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. As I told you, this was the initiative to destroy evil and to lead the captives, set the captives free. But you see, that wasn't the focus of Jesus' ministry. It was definitely the focus of of Jonah's preaching, um, um, judgment to lead to repentance, and eventually salvation. Well, Jesus kind of flipped that whole process. Jesus came preaching redemption. He came preaching the love of God. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. And that great uh, Psalm 68, you ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train. That's what Jesus came to do, to seek and save the lost. He came to bring redemption. He talked about God's love and his compassion for God's soul of the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. He goes on in that and says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Right up front, the redemption of God. But he did not ever pull any punches as far as judgment because the very next verse, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. That's why I asked Clayton to read earlier that passage from John 12. Because it just expresses exactly what Jesus is saying here. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my what? My words. And does not keep them, I will not judge him, for I I did not come into the world um, to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my Words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Look at the emphasis that Jesus is placing on his word. Because that's his revelation. That's the truth. That's the light from heaven that has come down to express to us our relationship with God. It is the foundation upon which the church is built. When you start asking God for signs. 
when you start piecing together occurrences and circumstances and events, basically what you're saying to God is your word isn't enough. Your word isn't sufficient. I need something more than the word that you have given me in order to, discuss, to, to understand your will. Now, which would not be complete if I didn't go on and discuss the connection between the story of Jonah and the story of Jesus as far as the resurrection is concerned. Because after all, there's three days in the fish, and then there's three days by Hebrew reckoning, three days in the tomb, and that, um, that there's a relationship there. So part of the sign, yes, is the resurrection, because the resurrection showed us, A, that the words of Jesus were true, he was everything that he said he was, and that he did everything that he came to do, and that, very importantly, God accepted his righteousness and his substitutional atonement on your behalf to apply, to forgive your sins. All of that was made clear by the resurrection. But once again, the resurrection is a symbol of that, not necessarily a sign of that. It's showing us what happens. It's part of it. It's not pointing to something outside of itself. You know, this is a real interesting uh, comparison. When we compare Jonah and Jesus um, it's like so much of the Old Testament typology. There are, um, uh, there are similarities, and we've discussed several of those, but there are also some substantial differences. And, and so they're not you know, mirror images of each other. For instance, Jonah's a prophet. God speaks through his prophet. Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. Jonah is a man. Jesus is the son of man, the very um, God incarnate in the flesh. Jonah wanted Nineveh to be destroyed. He hated them. So he tried to run in the opposite direction to get away from God's will. Jesus says, not my will, but your, be done, your will be done. And he loved those that he died for even when they hated him. Like Saul of Tarsus, who hated the very thought of Jesus, even when Jesus paid for his sins. So there's a vast difference between the two. I mean, no, I mean, Jonah spent three days in the belly of the fish. That was his salvation. Jesus spent three days in the tomb for our salvation. Okay? But there's one thing that is identical in the two. And I just want to drill this into you because this is where so many people are, are, are missing the understanding of why Jesus would call signs evil. And that both of them focus on the word of God. Because Jonah was a prophet. And we read in the third chapter, then the word of God came, I'm sorry, the word of the Lord, Yahweh, came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. He was God's man bringing God's message, bringing the absolute truth of God. The people heard it, repented, and they were spared. Jesus was not just someone who brought the word of God. Jesus was the word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and 
tabernacled amongst us. He was the very word of God. And so brothers and sisters, when he stands before these people, he is in essence saying in times past, like the writer of Hebrews, God spoke through the prophets and in sundry ways, but in this time he speaks through his son, who is the radiance of God's glory and the very imprint of his nature. He has given you the revelation that you need. It is sufficient. It is all that we need for faith and practice. And to look past it and say that's not enough. You haven't fulfilled your need, my need for revelation. You need to send me a sign. Jesus says that is evil. And that no sign will be given you. Now the problem that I have is that I read that in Scripture. And almost every day, I hear something like, God told me this, or God told me that, or God showed me this, or God showed me that. I prayed for a sign, and God answered. And I was driving down the street, and I saw that billboard, and I heard this song, and I read that devotional, and a friend called, and I put them all together, and that was God telling me what I'm supposed to do. Every day I hear somebody saying that God showed them a sign. And I ask you again, is this a sign of exalted spirituality? Is this another level of faith? Are these actually signs of unbelief? Saying that the word of God is not enough. It's not sufficient for everything that you need. As I said, I split this sermon in two and... Originally, I mean, I do get way carried away, and I, I, I do think I have more time than I do. But originally what I was going to do at this part of the, of the message is, is I was going to go into some of the ridiculous ways that people are making a lot of money out there on telling people how to interpret signs. You know, how to get on God's frequency, how, how to listen to the words that he says and to know what he says. And, and, and I was first going to bring that out, but you know something? As, like I said in the beginning, I'm just going to let the words of Jesus speak for themselves because he says it a lot more powerful than I ever could. We have no business seeking after signs. There, there, there's danger involved with that. And I don't care how well-meaning it is. And I realize that so many of you say, God told me this or God told me that. And you're just using a vernacular. I mean, you're not actually saying God audibly talked to me. You're actually talking about the way that God does talk to us, which is illuminating his word and, and your study of the word. And I get that. I, I would warn you that not everybody you talk to gets that. A lot of people think you're actually saying, God talked to me, God spoke to me, or God showed me this in a sign. Be careful, because the devil will use the words you say against you, even when you're not meaning them that way. But rather, what I want to do is I just want to kind of summarize what we have seen today, and I want to put it into basically three principles for you. Two of them, dangerous warnings. One of them, just maybe a warning that I would bring to your attention. The first one is this, if you're an unbeliever and you demand a sign out of God, you are barking up the wrong tree. You'll never get it. Now, you may get what you believe is a sign. You, you, You may get something to see, but I can guarantee you it's not from God because God does not honor your unbelief. With a sign. We saw those four principles that I gave you earlier. God is under no obligation to give you a sign. 
He is not going to honor your unbelief with a sign. He is not going to be told how he reveals himself to you. And if he did and moved a mountain, you still wouldn't believe in him. So he's not going to give you one. So don't blame God when you say, God, I need you to do something for me. If you're really there, then save my loved one. And he doesn't do it. And you get angry at God. Don't get angry at him. He doesn't answer you that way. The second thing goes into um, those who are actually believers or claim to be believers or think they're believers. And that is a surefire way for you to know whether or not a sign is truly from the devil. Okay? It's got to be from one or two places, folks. It's either from God or from the devil. And, and I'm not one of those that is going to put God in a box and say he doesn't interact with us right now, that there's no intimate and intricate involvement of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I'm not going to say that because I don't believe it. I, I know that God is here, but I can tell you that if you believe that God is giving you a sign, I can give you a surefire way to know that it is not a sign from God. And that is if it in any way even hints of a conflict with his revealed, inspired, infallible word. If you find something in there and God tells you to do something, either in, in what you do and what you believe or in what you don't do, if it in any way conflicts with his authoritative, sufficient, revealed word, then it is not from God. And if it is not from God, it's from the devil. This has happened far too often in my time as a pastor. But one particular time kind of sticks out. People who will tell me, and oh, they are so convinced that God has given them a definitive sign. I had a young lady in my office one time who says, God has shown me without question that he wants me to move in with my boyfriend. (laughs) She was serious. I, I mean, completely serious. God has shown me. He wants me to be happy. And he's shown me through this. I was driving down the street and I heard that. And so and so said this. And uh, I mean a half a dozen different ways. And she pulled it together. And all of that is saying that God wants me to move in with my boyfriend. And, and, and I tried to reason with her and say, well, wait a minute. That's not what the word of God says. And how do you know that that subjective feeling is from God and not from the devil? She says, oh, no, I know it in my heart. That's where I know it. I know it in my heart that came from God. And, you know, I could never convince her. I could, and, and I lost touch with her. She left. Uh, I don't know what happened in her life. But I can tell you without question, brothers and sisters, God will never, ever give you a sign or give you circumstances that will in some way contradict his revealed word. Which leaves the third principle. And again, I'm not going to put God in a box. But I will tell you that what I asked that young lady, how do you know that this is a sign from God? I've asked that from dear brothers and sisters who with absolute surety tell me, no, that God has given me a sign. He has told me. And and, and on occasion, I have said, how do you know that that's a sign from God? And I get the same answer. I know it in my heart. I, I know. Well, I don't know about your feelings, but my feelings betray me. I can't depend on my feelings. What I can depend on is the word of God. 
And, and if I say that I'm going to listen to signs and ask for signs, it appears to me that I'm running against what Jesus says right here. But even if you can get around that somewhere, then how do you know if you ask for a sign or you seek for discernment through some kind of sequence of events, how do you know that that's God? You know, last week we talked about the problem that existed when when you, you, you had Jesus come into the front door, you know, and he occupies the house, but your flesh still has a back door that's open, you know, and you put a little welcome sign out to the devil there because you're not going to have Jesus in that part of your life. Well, let me tell you something. You start going around looking for signs, you not only have a welcome man in that back door, you've got a flashing neon sign that says, I am open to manipulation. Oh, you who masquerades himself as an angel of light. So what's the, what's the moral of this particular story? You don't need signs, folks. And, and, and at best, you're inviting Satan to, to try to mimic a, a sign and give you a wrong direction. At worst, you're telling God, sorry, but your word is not good enough. You know that the authoritative word of God is rock solid. It is the foundation upon which our church is built in every church since the apostles. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, the prophets, all of the Old Testament. That is the grounding cornerstone, the, the foundation that we have. Build on that. Don't ask for signs. Now, I'm going to leave you with this. I want to remind you where we are in Luke. We're talking about discernment. And you can easily say, well, wait a minute. Jesus doesn't tell me everything. You know, the Bible doesn't tell me anything. I, I got this new job. I got two jobs. Which one do I take? And, and, and so I asked Jesus. I throw up a fleece, you know, Old Testament administration. But I throw up a fleece and I ask God to show me one way or the other. Okay? You give him a 50-50 chance. <laughs> it's going to be one or the other. Right? But... The, the, the way that God has prepared us is through sanctification. Because the more sanctified you are, the more into the word you are, the more you communicate with God, the more time you spend in worship, the more times you take the, the sacraments, the more discerning spiritually you are. And you are equipped to make the right decision because you're on the same page with God. Now, that's his solution. Not seeking for signs. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, I know that, oh, I, I realize that so many people, and, and me included, I, I don't want to take myself out of this. Uh, in, in subtle ways, I know that all of us are looking to interpret circumstances, looking for voices, looking for some kind of, uh, of, of manifestation above and beyond your words. Lord, teach us as Jesus is teaching us now, as Luke is making clear that you have given us the means of grace. And these are the ways that we come to know you. And then we are equipped to make the right decisions. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.